Hello, I'm Miranda Sawyer and I've got some news about the news. By popular demand, Paper Cuts, our brilliant podcast where we look at the madness and majesty of the daily press, is going five days a week. That means you can hear my hilarious guests getting into the obsessions, the weirdness and occasionally the triumphs of the great British press every day from Monday to Friday. That's Paper Cuts, now out mid-morning every weekday. Follow us now on your favourite podcast app. Paper Cuts, we read the papers so you don't have to. Welcome to Oh God, What Now? Here to take out the trash from this week's news, but only after it's been separated into the correct bins. I'm Andrew Harrison. On today's show, as the backlash against scrapping HS2 grows, we ask, what does Rishi Sunak actually want? Is it just to ban things he doesn't like, such as smoking and imaginary bins? Does he have a vision beyond maths for everybody and scrapping green policies that are supported by notorious eco-fascists like the car industry? With perhaps less than a year to go before the general election, we look at what's really driving Britain's gap year Prime Minister. Plus, Greggs versus Pratt, Tea versus Dinner, Stoke versus Stoke Newington, Scone versus Scone. With so much political debate framed in terms of real Britain versus fake elitist London, we ask why the rest of the country hates the capital so much and what it's doing to our politics. To tackle these issues, we've assembled a panel of adopted Londoners from fields afar as Mykonos, Morocco and Magull. First up, it's commentator Alex Andreo. Hi, Alex. Hi, Andrew. So, as succession heads, we both got extremely excited last week when Rupert Murdoch announced he was stepping down as CEO of News Corp and Fox to be replaced by his son, Tom Wamskins, aka Lachlan. Many of Rupert's properties are in deep trouble. Fox has an identity crisis. The Sun has a book value of zero. Has the digger left a poison chalice for Lachlan? I'm hesitant to get the violin case open <laughs> um, because he still has... There could a, be lots of things I mean, in violin it's cases. It's still a better springboard than anyone else could ever get for mm. you know, a media company, right? He has money, he has contacts, he has brand recognition and a ready-made company. Um, I mean, the question is what he does with it. Murdoch, I think, spent many years shaping political trends and then he spent even more pretending that he had shaped political trends, that he just jumped on board. Um, and I don't know what's next in that, uh, uh, in that sequence. I think if, if, if Lachlan decided to run it like a normal media organization, I think it could turn a profit. It could be quite a successful one. But if he still tries to pretend he's basically... Zeus, Lawrence Olivier, Zeus in Clash of the Titans with a sort of human chessboard in front of him. Mm. I don't think anyone will buy that anymore um, because really the tragedy of Murdoch is that he opened a can of worms and then they run away from him. Those worms are now everywhere. They're not no longer under his control. <laughs> so if you want swivel-eyed conspiracy, there are other others there that are doing it more swivel-eyed, yeah. right? And if you want, I don't know, Trump, Trump fanaticism, ditto, there are others there who will be more fanatic than a, a mainstream organization. So what is left? And weirdly, in my view, what is left is that the, the pro-Democrat chair vacated by CNN. And I know that sounds like a crazy pivot, and I know it will have to be done slowly over time, but that's actually the space in the market. The space in the market is no longer on the right of politics. It's quite busy on the right, isn't it? See, this would be James's play, wouldn't it? James, woke James. Yeah. By which, woke, by which I mean not quite as right-wing as all the rest of the Murdochs. Like I said, it sounds nuts, but if you're, if you're looking, you know, I mean, Fox News, their average viewer I was uh, reading the other day at the moment, the median viewer is over 70 years old. Like... Hmm. You have to find some other space in that um, landscape to make your mark. And I don't think it's on the right because the right is so crowded. I just had a text message he wants to buy us. <laughs> <laughs> also joining me is Marie LeCant, who, like all the cool kids, and Dominic Cummings, is now on Substack <laughs> at youngvulgarian.substack.com. Hello, young Vulgarian. Hello, Dominic Cummings and I are actually best friends. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Is this, this all happening in the, in the secret Substack, the cool bar where you have to know the special knock? Yeah, I would say we have sleepovers, but I'm like, no, we don't. Actually, I, I don't even want to do that as a joke. Like, yeah, we, we wear matching pyjamas, Dom and I. What a thought. Um, so former speaker John Burkow 
has been announced as one of the contestants on the US version of The Traitors. How do you fancy his chances if only listeners could see oh, the kind of crumpling God, of Marie's features? I, oh, Jesus Christ. Marie the Cons! <laughs> Uh, so I've never watched The Traitors, mm. uh, so I have no idea how we will fare. However, I, I do find it exasperating that he's still managing to find work. Like, I, I don't know, I feel like, you know, he he was a massive bully and that that's very much on the record. There were many investigations on that. He was enabled by lots of the kind of like pro-Remain people because it was kind of convenient because he was kind of on their side. So they kind of swept that aside and that was fine. And then he left Parliament and then, you know, people were like, oh, haha, funny. Like those sort of people who maybe understand politics but unfollow it super, super super closely with, oh, funny John Burko, the man we used to hear on the telly who said MPs' names, uh, which was very annoying. And now somehow he's moved even one step further, just going to the US. Well, I'm, I'm guessing they'll just be entertained again by the, the funny Englishman who says words in a funny way and used to be a politician. And yeah, it just really annoys me. Like If you read the details, I'm really humorless on that stuff, but like, the details of the stories. Um, you know, so some people's lives or like careers were basically ruined because he was just so horrible to them. Before we start the podcast properly, a little bit of news. Our smash hit newspapers review podcast, Paper Cuts, has gone down so well that we're moving up from three times a week to every weekday. You can join Miranda Sawyer and friends mid-morning from Monday to Friday as they look at the absolute state of the fourth estate. It is the fast and funny way to keep up with the news. Don't miss an episode. Search Paper Cuts on your favourite podcast app, possibly the one you're using right now. Last week, it was plans to stop sales of petrol and diesel cars by 2030, plus the seven deadly bins and the imaginary meat tax that were going to be banished. This week, it appears to be the very real HS2 Manchester link that Prime Minister Sunak has in his sights. <laughs> plus, things like old-fashioned analogue A-levels and smoking in the open air, which is, okay, whatever. Is there any rhyme or reason to what Sunak wants to do? And with the clock ticking to the general election, does he have time to make any of it coherent? Alex, let's start with HS2. Sunak is getting it from both sides on this one. George Osman and Andy Burnham and QAnon took the boot into him for potentially scrapping the link between Birmingham and Manchester. Is there anything coherent in that particular part of Operation What Is Rishi Doing Today? No. Okay. So that's your short answer. Right. <laughs> so, so, no, well, no, it's been no, fun. Let's all go home now. Yeah. Okay. So um, I owe it to fee-paying listeners to expand on that, I suppose. Um so according to the government's own assessment, mm -hmm. the Birmingham to Manchester bit is where the bulk of, of the benefit of doing the thing was. This is what they said when they scrapped the Manchester to Leeds bit and the Midlands to Leeds bit. They said, oh, we're scrapping those because we can do them a slightly different way. And the bulk of the benefit to the region will be delivered by the Birmingham to Manchester bit. So scrapping that just leaves you with what? I mean, a hundred billion to shave 15 minutes of the train journey from London to Birmingham, which was quite a short train journey anyway. It's about capacity, though. Yeah, but it's about minimal uh, increase in capacity to Birmingham. That's the point, right? It's not where more capacity is needed. I go to Birmingham needed. seven times a day yeah, and actually I not, really need but this. But it's not where more capacity is needed, right? So the, just to give a very, very brief history, it was meant to connect. First of all, it was meant to connect to HS1. So it was meant to take this country to... I don't even want to say the 21st century because really to the 20th century yes. where you had an international rail network that connected to each other. So first they scrapped the, the bit that connected Euston and King's Cross that would make it a, a seamless HS2 to HS1 uh -huh. thing. Th then they scrapped the bits that were the bit that was going to be, go Midland to Le Midlands to Leeds. Then they scrapped Leeds to um, sorry Manchester to Leeds. Then they said it's probably not going to get to Euston straight away. It will get some small town, although common, outside London. Mm. And now there's I mean, and in the end, it will just end up a sort of. A, a, a steam a steam train between two villages, ironically called the HS2. I think I, th I think that's where that's where we're heading. But I mean, it would have been, you know, not that any of us in the stream is particularly interested in one decent memorial to this uh, to this government. Mm. But it would have been at least one thing that was 
physically clearly visible a genuine change to the country's infrastructure and you know even that with all the sunk costs is is this not enough to justify it in the eyes of the cabinet well, look, i mean a government should never be in a position where we've already spent a lot of money is justification for continuing to spend money but there there has to be quite a high threshold right mm -hmm. i mean first of all in my mind something that was conceived in 2009 and approved in 2010 should not be the subject of debate in 2023. It should be nearly mm -hmm. done, right? And so it's that dither, that awful uh, procurement exercise that they just farm out bids to loads of companies, which encourages them to underbid to say it's going to cost less than they think it's going to say it costs. Mm -hmm. And be faster than anything, and then times timing start to slip, costs start to slip, inflation comes in, makes it all balloon. But you know, we shouldn't be we shouldn't be here at all. Is is the yeah. the, the answer? Given that the Conservative conference next week is apparently using the slogan <laughs> "Long term decisions for a brighter future." This seems to be a complete contradiction. It's a short-term decision, and it illustrates how the future isn't particularly bright. Hmm. I think all of this is based on the electoral strategy that if if they say X enough, even as they do the exact opposite, hmm. a big enough demographic is too thick to notice. And I don't think that's true, actually. I think the experience of Brexit has been really a didactic moment for this country. You know, voters are a lot wiser now than they were eight years ago. And I think it will come back to bite them in the ass because it 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 just looks terrible. Marie, announcing the end of a key transport link to Manchester while you're actually in Manchester suggests poor planning at, at the very least, doesn't it? You may very well think that, Andrew. I, think that. I couldn't possibly. <laughs> uh, but no, it isn't the weird thing as well that actually technically, I think they've said they're not making an announcement until after conference. So it's actually even worse than that. They're going to yeah. be in Manchester, yeah. not talking about the story everyone wants to talk about. So no one will <laughs> listen to whatever else they want to talk about because they will want to talk about the Manchester-related thing. Um, at, a, at, a yeah. at, a, at a party conference they couldn't, they couldn't get to because there was a strange strike. Yes. Oh, also, if anyone listening, by the way, uh, could give me a ride back, <laughs> that is certainly something I've not sorted yet. You're going. So yeah. Well, I think it's going to be a case of like you have to go home via Leeds, or maybe you have to go home via Liverpool. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, Grant Sharps was doing the rounds on Sunday, mm. and he was getting annoyed. But does he have space in his car? He was annoyed that he was getting asked questions about HS2. He was like, "I'm here to talk about defence." He's been defence secretary yeah, for like five now. minutes, and he was transferred. Secretary, so while be, all of this was going on. It's going to be three and a half days of that. Yeah. Uh, but in the same way, I can't remember what policy it was now, like last year, but uh, some reversals from the mini budget, I think, at Tory conference, where again, entirely predictably, it did finally break halfway through conference because that stuff always happens. So, yes, no, that, that was a stupid decision. Um, what are you looking forward to from the Conservative Party conference? More long term decisions for a brighter future? Again, if anyone in Manchester had some heroin, uh, I would, <laughs> you know, that's something I would look forward to. <laughs> uh, no, I, I'm, I'm not. No, to be fair, I so what I didn't quite understand about this conference is why Rishi has not done his reshuffle yet. Because I could, there's a world in which I could tell you, actually, he's got a new cabinet now, he's got new benches. I am quite curious to see what that team is like, that what team they're taking into the election. Because clearly there's been a bit of a gear change recently, policy-wise, but people-wise as well, that would be really interesting. But because he's not even done that, mm. I, so yeah, I'm... I, I, I'm really not sure what what will happen there. Not in a fun, excited way, just in a general shrugging way. Well, last week, after Crime Week and Boats Week, we had Bin Week, where imaginary things were banished. <laughs> imaginary bin policies and an imaginary meat tax. Uh, when meat tax was coming, I would have known about it, right? Um, oh, compulsory car sharing. Compulsory car car sharing. Yes, I love that, love that. that <laughs> yeah, get, you get that mini, you <laughs> nana. Yeah. So, I mean, we're used to straw man arguments from the Conservatives, but not actual straw man policies, not banning things that nobody is, is advocating. If Sunak is currently defining himself by what he's not doing, does this give us any idea what like any shape of a, of a campaign might be? <laughs> or is it going to be a, like the kind of the silhouette, the kind of reverse hologram? <laughs> Here's all the things we're not going to do and try and work out what we are going to do from that. Well, I think like, 
Oh, God. So my main worry is that, yeah, we've got Rishi Sunak, who's now like, well, all these things no one had ever mentioned before. To be clear, we're not going to do them. But then we do also have Keir Starmer, who's like, well, I'm not confirming we'll do anything. Um, you know, because that, that all his thing is people going, oh, well, you know, the Tories are, let's say, reversing this or reverse this a few years ago. Would Labour bring it back? And he doesn't say he will. So there's a genuine prospect we'll have an entire, and I'm sure it'll change, you know, I, I'm being glib. But, um, but yeah, I'm just picturing a campaign when, you know, Rishi is just like, well, I'm not going to do things you've not heard of. And Keir Starmer is like, well, I'm not doing anything either. <laughs> so, and and David Burst on stage says, I'm not doing anything either. Yeah. And we Can, just sit there for six weeks. Yeah. Um, May I make a correction, which I think makes all the difference in terms of comedy. He didn't just ban or say he's not going to do this stuff. He said he scrapped them. <laughs> which to me makes a big difference. He, he, he was going, make tax, I've scrapped it. Oh, yeah. Um, so having to sort your stuff in seven bins, I've scrapped that too. And it's like, so it's not just I'm not going to do these things. It, it, there was a suggestion that you're already being made to do that, which would have confused a lot of people. <laughs> That would have been such a funny speech, actually, to be like, you know how you, you've not been allowed to eat meat? <laughs> you know how you've not been allowed to eat meat for like weeks and months now? And just everyone watching that going, is he having oh, a stroke? Like, is he what, like, what are, you know, your seven bins currently outside your house? I, I, I do have relatives, though, who have maybe two bins who think they've got seven because it's like we've got loads of them. Loads. You've got two. Loads, seven, no, dozens. Yeah, he'd yeah. Have, yeah, he really should have gone for like postmodern, like weird, yeah. Alex, defending Sunak on Sky against criticisms from Zach Goldsmith. Kenny Badenoch said that Goldsmith's not in touch with the British people because he's too rich. This is a funny way to defend Rishi Sunak, isn't it? It does seem quite a risky line to take, doesn't mm. it, when the Prime Minister's um, swimming pool heating bill is apparently more than the average fam family's uh, annual energy bill. So... Mm. Yeah, I, I feel that might come back to bite them. But yeah. I think she was riffing at that point, which is something Kemi does quite a lot, I feel. She thinks she's she's really quite smart and can just freelance a little bit on topics that she hasn't been briefed on and gets in quite a lot of trouble. It's interesting. The, 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 the bit of policy that actually was real was the rolling back of the diesel and petrol yeah, car yeah. policy. And some of the biggest names to come out against it are Ford and Aston Martin, yeah. who've been investing on the proviso that the deadline of 2030 was real. They could plan around this. Sales of petrol and diesel cars will be immovable. This came as something of a surprise to them, and they weren't very happy. If MPs won't tell Sunak that this is a terrible idea, is he going to listen to Ford and Aston Martin? He's going to listen to business. I, uh, look, I, I don't think so, because none of this is based in reason. Mm. And, and just to put the funny side of these things aside for, for a moment. If, if we go back to the HS2 story, it has something in common with this rolling back of green subsidies story. At a time when Britain is seen as not the most reliable international partner, at a time when the UK is not seen as the most not volatile environment in which to invest, I think beyond whether HS2 is a smart thing to do or not, or green subsidies should go ahead, um, you know, and cars phased out in 2030 or 2035. I think what is at stake is a reputational thing for inward investment, mm. like cancelling HS2 13 years into the project is going to cost a huge amount of money from people who have been enticed to invest in that area because the train will go through it and now find themselves in the middle of nowhere. It, you know, a, a government has to follow through. There comes a point where the debate needs to end on an issue. And I think that's why the UK is so poor at delivering projects. The debate is always open. The political debate behind the project, whatever it is, the new runway at Heathrow. I mean, I'm not saying you should be for or against these things, but I'm saying there's a time to be for or against these things. 
and a time at which a decision is made, and you have to see it through. You can't, you know, the nuclear power stations. How many, how many times have we had a new nuclear power station announced and then gone back on two mm. years later? What I don't understand is what is the supposed electoral advantage now when you were, you know, like I say, less than probably less than a year away from an election. They're in a panic. It's, it's blind panic. That's all it is. They know they're, they're going to get a pasting and they know that the general feeling behind that pasting is it's time for a change. And there are only two defensive strategies against this, right? The first is to say, now is not the time. Major in 1992 mm -hmm. did that. Now is not the time. But this necessitates an appreciable improvement in things so that you can say to people, look, we're... We're doing it. We're almost there. Mm. Give us a bit more time. The second is to present yourself as the insurgent. Johnson did that successfully in 2019. This is what they're trying to do. To present yourself as the insurgent after you've been in government for 13 years necessitates turning over a few tables and breaking some stuff. And the problem for the Conservatives is that they have such a lack of legacy. There are so few policies. Like, what are their big policies? that they, they have implemented in the last 13 years, that someone could come in and reverse to show that they're a new person with fresh thinking, and actually they're not a continuation of the mm. previous government, but a, but a change, right? There's nothing. So they're coming in and they go, what is there? Oh, HS2, kick that. Uh, yeah. Green, uh, net zero, kick that. Just on the point of, uh, on why they would be doing that now, and this is very, like, and to be clear, it's a cynical theory more than like, any sort of insider knowledge I have. But I wonder, because I think, and it's kind of a well-known dance right now where, you know, the Conservatives are doing something. The Labour Party, you know, is asked about it and says, yeah, well, you know, we, we'd keep doing that if, in, you know, if slash when in government. Then the Tories, obviously, you know, decide to slash that thing. So the HS2 uh, most recently, allegedly. But then obviously that does become a bit tricky for Labour because that suddenly becomes a massive spending commitment if it's money the government is no longer spending. So they're stuck between saying, oh, God, you know, we're, we're entirely led by the government because whatever they do, apparently we agree with it. All saying, no, we're going to keep that going. But that means spending a lot of money. And I think the Tories are trying to pain the Labour Party, especially like for the next election, is both kind of endlessly flip-flopping and also the kind of old chestnut of Labour spends too much money, cannot be trusted with the finances. So I think, like, I would say for me that that fits into that kind of electioneering, looking at the campaign kind of thinking. Alex, just to wrap up this thing that doubtless will be returned to over and over again, what does he want? What is he for? Does he even have a mandate anymore? I mean, when he was, when he was brought in, his yeah. words, as if it's like kind of management consultancy... It was on the 2019 manifesto, which included green policies that he has just repudiated. I've scrapped it. I've scrapped it. Well, it's scrapped it, mate. That 2019 manifesto, scrapped I've scrapped that too. So, like, is that where's this legitimacy, or am I just, you know, it's nowhere? And and I'm surprised this is not talked about more. Uh, when he came in in 2019, there were a lot of people, even in the Conservative party vocally expressing the view that the mandate, the 2019 mandate was quite personal to Boris Johnson. And he came in specifically firefighting that charge. And in his letter to Boris Johnson, when he came in as prime minister, he, he said, I think you'll recognize that the mandate we, we received wasn't a personal, it doesn't belong to anyone in particular, but it belongs to the 2019 manifesto. Well, the Tent poles of that manifesto were net zero. They were uh, leveling up <laughs> the central spine of which is HS2. And where are they now? So wh what is his, wh where from does he derive his democratic legitimacy? And I wouldn't be surprised actually if now that there are dissenting voices in his backbenches, we began to see more sustained calls for a general election, especially if he has a bad com conference and maybe even a couple of votes of no confidence. Next up, it's time to choose our hero and villain of the week. Alex and Marie are going to make impassioned pitches for their choices, and then I will decide who wins because I'm an autocrat like Rishi. Marie, who was your hero and who was your villain for the week? 
Um, well, my hero, which I don't know, it always feels a bit like losing a bet to praise him, but um, it's Andy Burnham. Yeah. Um, no, the fact that he's gone in really hard on HS2 and like really quite angrily and making points that do need to be made about the fact that, you know, there should be the line going from Birmingham to Manchester, etc. And actually the North does matter and trains do matter. Um, but, but you know, more broadly, I guess, like the slightly nerdier point is like, that that's why it's important to have mayors of big cities, etc. Because, you know, that means that it's not left to Keir Starmer to do everything at the national level. Mm. We can actually have the person responsible and the, you know, bit of bit of the country making those points so my villain is a uh, is somewhat more esoteric okay um and technically i don't know their name um, okay is this is they are they in the room with us now uh, it's a liberal democrat press officer okay. i assume basically it's any like, whoever drafted this line so munira wilson who is the lib uh, lib dem education spokesperson uh, gave this quote on, and again, it's like talking about paternity leave at a uh, Lib Dem conference, a very worthy topic I do feel exceptionally strongly about. However, the way she phrased it was, we need to persuade more Kens in this world to take a short break from doing beach and head on back to the Mojo Dojo Casa House. And that made me cringe so much. <laughs> like, so bad. It made me angry. That's how much I cringe. That's, that's, that's so yeah, bad. whoever you are, if you're listening, I hate you. I, I would have much preferred a kind of an, an Oppenheimer reference there. You know, <laughs> we, we, need to, we need to persuade more Albert Einsteins yeah. to stop messing around with particle physics. Alex, who are you pitching for Hero and Villain? Right, so my Hero of the Week is Stefanos Kasselakis, who is the new um, leader of the opposition party in Greece, Syriza, um, and just won the election for that. He's a complete newcomer, a total unknown um, that uh, has somehow tapped into a really now um, vibe on the left in Greece and managed to come from nowhere with extraordinary social media and, and traditional media presence and win. He's openly gay. He's married to his boyfriend. He is incredibly eloquent, incredibly comfortable with media. He's uh, a sort of Goldman Sachs alumnus that's anti-capitalism uh, and uh, a, a sort of entrepreneur that's very pro-business and openly very socialist. So he's a huge contradiction and the right wing are losing their fucking mind at the moment. And so I don't know how he will turn out. I don't know whether his politics are genuine or not. But it it is a, a little flavor of that Obama moment when he came from nowhere and became the candidate for the Democrats. Just because, you know, just as racism was beginning to rage in the States and it felt like it was a choice designed to really trigger the right wing. And that's what it feels like in Greece. They are shitting themselves. He, the, like the, the, the center right and the far right are absolutely losing their minds because they know he's a huge danger. To Is them. it possible to say in a, in a, a nutish shell, a nutshell, where he's taken Syriza? Because Syriza has obviously had a very checkered history recently since meteoric, meteoric rise yeah. and, you know, Perhaps not the best governing party there's ever been. What what what's his series are like? I mean, there there have been a lot of splinter parties from Syriza, one by Varoufakis, one by you know by various prominent people that are positioned slightly to the left of Syriza, and the traditional centre-left party in Greece, PASOK, is kind of has been on its deathbed mm. for several years now, and so I think he's taking Syriza to a slightly more mainstream. Uh, social democratic centre-left space. But like I said, uh, he's doing so by being slightly, slightly more conservative economically, mm -hmm. but much more liberal socially. And that is what is really, I think, frightening the right wing okay. in the country. Who's your villain? My villain of the week is uh, Lionel Shriver, Okay. Um, who um, announced uh, it, it, with much um, 
fanfare that she's leaving the country. She's doing a proper flounce. I'm going to help her back. She is absolutely disgusted, apparently, with the fact that this country has fallen for an entirely imported culture war around woke, woke issues. And I was watching this interview and thinking... You're what now, mate? Um, <laughs> Easy life. Because literally her back catalogue of articles are the most abrasive, aggressive, incendiary, absolutely shrill culture war stuff. And so she's leaving this, this absolutely awful country uh, embroiled in woke culture wars and going to, drum roll, Portugal. Okay. <laughs> She's going to the what? EU yeah. and a country with a socialist government. Yeah, I was about to say, they've been quite politically yeah. left for some like, time now. So, so you're far-right, Brexiter, culture warrior, you're disgusted by it all, and you're going back to the bosom of the EU now, are you? Well. Goodbye and good luck. Okay. To the Portuguese. Yes. <laughs> so I have to choose a winner, and considering that... Andy Burnham could probably be in with a shot of winning this again many, many times. I'm afraid it's going to be a clean sweep to Alex, I'm afraid, Marie. I'm afraid. Casalakis. Sirius whose name I'm not going to pretend. Casalakis. Casalakis. Learn that name. Learn it. And and watch videos of him. Villain Lionel really Shriver. Hot, like yeah. Oh, no, I know. Really I'm away, hot. and obviously I had already checks. Yeah. You'll, you'll get a shot next time. I'm sure you'll win. It's not, it's not a competition, except it is a competition. <laughs> Alex has won it. Fine, fine. <laughs> I'll just leave now. It's been fun. <laughs> now, no Conservative ever went bust by having a go at that London. Defending the rollback and petrol car sales, Tory MP Neil O'Brien complained that the poor people can't drive narrative is such a London bubble thing. Tory candidate for Mayor of London, Susan Hall, opened her campaign attacking the non-more London event, the Notting Hill Carnival. And it's not just Conservatives either. Suspicion of London is a red wall staple and was a huge driver of the Brexit vote. On any news site, you're never more than three feet away from a comment of somebody saying they visited London once in 1974, it was dirty, they didn't like it, and they're not going back. Will Britain <laughs> ever get over its London phobia? Will London ever wake up and work out why the rest of the country doesn't like it? Alex, Murray and I are now full pie and mash eating pearly kings and queens. We have moved to London and become of it. We are. Um, we all we really are. definitely, we all three chose to move to London. I mean, where I came from, resentment of London was always around. When the great storm of 1987 happened, everybody loved it. So it's about time something happened to them. But as a, as a Greek and a French woman, were you aware of the resentment, not at the same time, obviously, were you aware of the resentment towards London elsewhere in the country? One, two, three. As a, as a Greek and a French woman, says Marie. Yeah. Uh, yes, think? yes. Um, no, it's actually not really. I mean, I suppose it didn't come as much as a surprise, and I'm sure we'll talk about it later, but there's very much a Paris versus the rest of France kind of dynamic. Yeah. So I wasn't hugely surprised when it turned out that, you know, uh, same thing happens here. And obviously, you know, growing up also in Athens, I, I was aware. <laughs> <laughs> because you love Paris, don't you? Particularly Parisians. Oh, God. Oh, God. I just hate them so much. So much. Like, I, I'm the world's biggest hypocrite because... Why do you hate Parisians? They're so rude. Like, they're generally incredibly rude. Like, both in general... Rightly rude. so. No, no, rude in general, but also really rude to French people who are not Parisian. Quite rightly. Uh, what? Oh, my God. <laughs> like, learn how to dress and behave, for God's sake. You'd okay, like no, no, Alex. She's speechless. speechless. I know how to dress, and I will never learn how to behave. <laughs> These are my two rules in life. Speechless. Um, no, so yeah, they're really rude, and no, but also I think there's a slightly deeper point. And obviously, I'd, I'd rather die than live in Paris. But um, but with friends who have who have moved there, you know, there's that thing where in London, I think New York, etc. You know, you become a Londoner because you live here and you want to be a Londoner and that's that, that's mm. it. Whereas Paris, you can have lived there for 10, 15 years and if you're not from there, you will still encounter people who go, you're not, you're not really a Parisian though. Like you're not, you, know, you didn't grow up intramuros, like, you know, within mm. the kind of boundaries of the city. Um, no, and I, I don't know, yeah, and I, I, I do dislike as well the general, yeah, Parisian-like way of dressing and way of everything. It's really stifling and really conservative and, you know, and again, in a way that we don't really have in the rest of France, or at least not where I come from, in lovely not. There we go. Well, screw those guys. Alex, you know, you came to London wanting to come to London. Were you aware yeah, that I mean, the rest of the country haters? Ditto. Yeah. There is a similar thing in Greece of, you know, everyone resenting metropolitan Athenians, even though... As far as I can see, pretty much everyone has either a small flat in Athens 
and mainly lives outside or mainly lives in Athens and has a small summer flat somewhere else. Um, so a lot of people share their time between the capital and not in Greece. Um, but yeah, I mean, that thing is there, but it never, it never he held any issue for me because to me, I think to anyone with non-uncomplicated sexuality, you gotta go to the capital. Like mm -hmm. being in a small town is not an option for someone that, let's say, you know, is gay and of a particular scene that they want to explore. Do you know what I mean? So I and I and I think that's rarely talked about how the capital of each country is like this massive beacon that attracts perverts and yes. I say that like <laughs> in the best thing. way yeah. <laughs> in the best possible sense right mm -hmm. it it attracts the most creative people the most curious people and the really the most um sexually diverse crowd and that kind of makes it it gives it a real soul for me Getting back to the politics of it, yeah. our producer, uh, Alex Reese did a bit of nosing around and found a fun, a fun funding fact. If the north of England was a country, it would mean that in the whole of Europe, only Greece was receiving lower public and private funding. The north of England, mm. north of, mm. you know, north of the wash. I mean, Where does it start? Well, like, well that's all, yeah. <laughs> We've just been talking about the disaster of HS2. Do you think that, um, you know, perhaps the levelling up thing was conceived solely as a means to weaponise that resentment of London? I, well, I think it was it was implemented in that way. It was oper operationalized in that way. But mm. I think the idea of it is actually really, really good. It it I think it's a policy that Labour should adopt and make their own. This notion that w we need to up the rate at which basically we create jobs, infrastructure, stuff outside London, so that over a period of time it catches up. I think where it went wrong is that it was pitched as, right, we're going to stop giving you any money now here down south because your life is already splendid, which is not true for millions of people, and we're going to give it all up north. And that creates a really weird dynamic in a country where it, it pits one part of it against another part of it. And that, that's dysfunctional. It's unhealthy. But it's also, so I, I was mostly struck uh, by how politically naive it was. So when Boris, uh, I think, was it when he won the election, when he won the leadership contest? I can't remember. But I was doing a piece also related to that. So I, I spoke to actually a lots of people, so like experts and former advisors, most mm. importantly, I think, to previous Conservative and Labour governments. And all of them, obviously, fuming, they were like, do they really think we'd not noticed that there was a like, regional inequality in Britain? Like, do they really think we had like, we didn't try to fix it? And it is true that, that I think that, that there was a tone to them saying, well, guys, we have noticed that the North is poorer than the South and we will do something and fix it. Um, when actually the problem is, you know, the problem is that there are many, many problems, basically, and none of them are very easy to fix and none of which you can really solve in even, mm. you know, in some cases, a generation. Like, it's stuff that's very, very long term. And that that both requires tons of investment, but also really that proper long term thinking, neither of which I think Westminster yeah. has been good at for some yeah, time. So, yeah. so I think, yeah, mostly I would say just incredibly naive to say, oh, well, we, we noticed that, so we're, we're just going to fix it now. You're welcome. Yeah. And also, by the way, we're going to scrap sure stuff and all those other things, but we're yeah. going to replace it with a big railway, mm. which is very conspicuous and, and, and can be seen mm -hmm. from space. I don't know if they're ever going to get a definitive answer to where the North really begins. Apparently there was a um, a machine learning study that compared the distribution of Greggs and Presamanger and found <laughs> that the line cuts through the West Midlands at a weird angle, meaning Exeter is technically in the North. So this machine's like got that. a lot of learning to do, I think. I mean, Marie, do you think, you know, when the Conservatives use attacks like Islington Lawyer, and kind of North London elites and all this kind of stuff uh, on Keir Starmer. Are they revealing like the London centricism of their own thinking? Because most people outside of London do neither know nor care what those things are. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's also annoying because, you know, Islington has so much social housing and so many kids in poverty. Like Islington, you know, in that case, say, like, if you wanted to be correct, you should talk about Chelsea or like Kensington Quite. or whatever. So like, it does really yeah. annoy me, which is a very. But those are very Tory areas, exactly. you see. Exactly. 
Um, so no, no, absolutely. I do think it's a very like because you know we can't forget that all MPs by definition have to spend at least half their time uh, in London. So so they do know London much better than most people would. So I think mm. stuff like Islington may work after a while purely because they've been repeating it for so long now. But but yes, no, it, it does ultimately just reveal that they're Londoners just like the rest of us. And I think that's that's probably the problem with the way that um, that policy or that idea was put into effect because it was used to mask the real disparity which is between classes, you yeah. know. I mean, Harrogate is a fuck of a lot re- richer than Tottenham. Yeah. Mm. So, so to say all of London is rich, actually, if you take out like finance and take out the oligarchs around the river and take out the really rich boroughs, London is as poor as anywhere yeah. else. Well, I, I have I have bits of fact here. The poorest London borough, Barking and Dagenham, has an average income that's three times lower than the richest, Kensington and Chelsea. Tower Hamlets has the highest highest rates of child poverty in the country, even under Labour. You know, you have to ask, is the inequality in London going to stay endemic as long as people complain about how, you know, Mm. poverty only occurs in the north and prosperity is only in the south. Another way of looking at it, though, of course, you you have to accept that the imbalance in the economy in terms of the productivity of London, you you can't argue against that. You know, the the ONS says that London produces the highest tax revenues per head at 18,400 per person. The UK average is 11,800. So welcome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, so why do they hate us? Why do they hate us? We pay for everything. I mean, but but the point about that is that cities are efficient. Mm -hmm. That's why they've taken as a trend, you know. That's why cities have become quite a fashionable thing in the last few hundred years. They are incredibly efficient. Isn't there, so I'm switching hats slightly here, but isn't the problem, though, that some cities in the north, like my beloved Leeds, I love Leeds, does not have a tram or like a proper, like yeah. efficient, um, as a social media system. I'm just so online. I'm like, oh, how yeah. do you travel? Of course, via Twitter. Uh, but no, public transport system is what I meant. So, so I think that I, I do see the problem. I think cities in the north probably could be more productive than oh, they are. Oh, but that's the um, point. Yeah. No, no, that's the point. The mm. point is that they can reach a mass of efficiency that will require particular infrastructure in them Mm. that will increase the prosperity of that entire region. That's what's been lacking. But but so often it's presented as um, urban areas versus rural areas. That's the other aspect of the South versus North debate. You know, in parallel runs this debate that actually Manchester is quite prosperous if you compare it to rural areas Mm. around Manchester. Sure. I mean, there is stuff that is better about living in a city and there is stuff that is significantly worse. And when I visit the countryside, I envy a lot of the, you know, the the quality of life that people in the countryside enjoy. Well, I make the same judgment overall, otherwise I would have moved to the countryside. Yeah. That's mm. the point. But and miss things that I enjoy about London and vice versa. It's too green. They should introduce new <laughs> colours to the countryside. Yeah. It's really samey. But, but the point is it's not one or the other, and the primary separating line is not where you are, it is income. It is the mm. job you do and how that is paid. I ran into a bunch of people earlier this year in a in a rural pub, and the conversation developed. You know, are you here from London? And they went straight in with, "How do you feel about having your freedoms taken away because you can't have a car? Are you frightened of being stabbed all the time? Isn't it dirty? Isn't it frightening? It's not really England anymore, is it?" Oh. And it just felt like a straight bill of fare straight out mm. of a Daily mm. Mail comment thing. And I happily said, "It's great not having a car." It's really cheap. You can go out and drink as much as you like and then get get the bus home. Um, are you frightened of being stabbed? Not really. You know, it's much more dangerous in the suburbs where somebody's going to flatten you for no good reason at all in the pub. And But it just felt like they were operating on a completely alien set of facts. Mm. It was not just a resentment of London, but a kind of fear of the unknown. But it, I don't know. I Okay, my, my weird counterpoint to this is going to be 
Hasn't that always been the case? Like, yeah. If you read stuff, you know, novels, etc., from the past like decades, in probably hundreds of years, at a pinch, there's always been that. And I think people who live in small towns and villages, etc., will always hate the big cities and vice versa. There's a fantastic H.L. Mencken quote where he attributes things like prohibition to, and this is the quote, the yokel's congenital and incurable hatred of the city man, his simian rage against everyone who, as he sees it, is having a better time than he is. Well, that's why we move to cities, to have a better time. Yes. And all of our listeners who aren't in cities, yes, we do love you. And we know that you have a great cosmopolitan outlook. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening to this podcast. But there's a, there's a sort of a, something quite true there, isn't there, that you can't get well, away I mean, I, I, But I can see myself living in the country at some point um, without it fundamentally changing what I think is right and fair and moral. Mm. Um, you know, without it suddenly turning me into a different person. Wait till you want to get sushi at four o'clock no, in the morning, you'll change your tune. Yes, but that that is a, that is a, a, a trade-off that I understand before I make that move. All I'm saying is I think there are fantastic things to be enjoyed in any given lifestyle, provided you go into it with an attitude to enjoy what it has to offer rather than complain about what it doesn't offer, which is, I think, what the, the flip side of what Marie is describing, of people sort of really actively hating living in the city. And it's like, well, it's not like you don't have any options. I mean, it's really expensive and difficult to live in the city, so go live somewhere else um, and commute. You know, you'll just have a longer commute. Do that. Plenty of people do it. We've reached the end of the show, so it's time for escape routes that books, films, TV, music, whatever, that is taking people's minds off politics. Marie, what's your escape route? Um, I recently finished reading The Immortalists by Chloe Benjamin, uh, which is a really, really tremendous novel. So the setup is, so I think it begins in the 60s in New York, uh, and these four siblings who are between, was there, I can remember, so like, let's say six and 12 or something like that, um, hear of this woman who can apparently tell the future and tell you when you're going to die. And so the four uh, four siblings go see this woman one by one. The woman says, you know, you don't find out at that point what she says, but, you know, all four. This book is this kind of like massive story spanning all their lives and actually looking at, and obviously like quite centred around their deaths, um, but looking at kind of the concept of destiny and, you know, self-fulfilling prophecies and also believing in kind of like sibling links and, uh, love and friendship and alcohol etc like, it is just you know one of those like great big books mm, that cover yeah. everything I recommended it to my grandmother very recently and she's now bought it because it's been translated to French then I did remember the like couple of scenes of quite graphic gay sex um, in it but I mean it's you know she, it's she's, a, she's a yeah exactly she, she's a well-read woman it'll be fine um, <laughs> Alex how about you um, so it's bulb lasagna time it's, it's like what, what? Bulb lasagna time. You might, you must remember from last year. Remind um, me. It caused a, it, it caused a, a wave of enthusiasm from listeners. It's basically, so now is the time. You, you have about two or three weeks to do the stuff you need to do with your potted plants and the garden and everything. Oh, that is only really good advice. Thank um, you. I did not know like that. Like before yeah. you lose the light. Um, not just before the weather gets colder, but also before you lose the light, because what happens is people suddenly are shocked by the fact they, that they get home from work and it's already dark. So th these are the last few weeks when you will have a couple of hours a day to do bits and bobs in the garden. And my favorite thing to do uh, this time of year is to make my bulb lasagna, which I will be making again. It's when you take a big pot. Um, uh, either a wide round pot or a planter, and you go layer of soil, layer of, say, tulip bulbs, layer of soil, layer of, like, irises, layer oh. of soil, layer of snowdrops. <laughs> Put it in the um, oven for half an hour. <laughs> and, and, and they bloom at different times, so they come through each other. So you get the first layer first, and then the next layer comes through and begins to bloom, and then the third layer comes through and begins to bloom. And it's the most beautiful um, display first thing in the spring. Aww. And you can't, if you don't do it now, you literally can't do it then because these are bulbs which require a period of cold to be then activated. Okay. Um, and so I do it every year now. And it is 
I mean, I cannot explain the joy you get when you see those snowdrops and crocuses come through in March. It, it's like a, at the end of a long period of darkness and shitty weather, it's a wonderful thing for the soul. I love darkness and shitty weather. It's my favourite thing. Weirdo, northerner. Yeah, yeah, quite. <laughs> Go back to where you came from. <laughs> well, my, uh, my escape route is uh, John Niven, uh, the novelist's incredible memoir, Oh Brother, uh, about his family and the life and death of his brother, Gary. Um, you might know John Niven's um, work from the uh, remarkable Kill Your Friends, which is a kind of, you know, the music business as if it was a Richard Allen novel. Yeah. Um, and John's a big presence on Twitter and a friend of the podcast. Oh Brother tells the story of how he and his brother's lives diverged. Um, John goes into the music business, um, lives a life of, I think he'd admit, a fair degree of debauchery um, and effectively bottoms out and, you know, tells himself that, you know, he must work on, you know, he must give it all to become a novelist or, you know, his life's kind of a failure. But his brother, Gary, takes a very, very different route, basically is in the rave scene, petty crime, drug dealing, and what starts out as a kind of... Is this uh, your autobiography? No, this is not me. This is not me, no. Um, what starts out as a kind of, you know, story of like, you know, vaguely troubled brothers develops into a really sad and quite a moving picture of, you know, mental illness, neglect in the, uh, in, in the medical system, um, the failure of the system to really be able to get to grips with people whose problems don't fit mm. the mould. Mm. Mm. Um, it's extremely moving. And um, I've got to say as well, you cannot put it down. I'm devouring it. It's just, it is a, a story of family dysfunction, but with an awful lot of family, familial love in it, people trying to do the right thing. Um, and it also kind of reads at thriller pace. Um, it's incredible. It's called Oh Brother um, uh, by John Niven. And that's the end of the Tuesday edition of Oh God, What Now? Thank you, Marie. Thank you. And thank you, Alex. My pleasure. Oh God, What Now? We'll be back on Friday or Thursday if you're a Patreon backer. Uh, before then, you'll have two extra editions of Paper Cuts to get through. So we hope you'll enjoy that. Check it out on your favourite podcast app. We'll see you next time. Oh God, What Now? was presented by Andrew Harrison with Alex Andreu and Marie LeConte. The managing editor was Jacob Jarvis, Northerner. And the producers were Chris Jones and me, Alex Reese, both Northerners. Socials by Jess Harpin, Northerner. Art direction by Mark Taylor and James Parrott, also a Northerner. Oh God, what now? Is a Podmasters production. Oh God, what now?